This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Wednesday, June 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Philly Collapse. That phrase usually refers to Super Bowls or, among pulmonologists, massive internal organ failure resulting from reliance on a mostly Drake's Cakes and Cheesesteaks diet. But as of a week ago, the Philly Collapse became an acknowledgement that a portion of Interstate I-95, which I realize is redundant, Interstate I-95, but that piece of road went down like a row house during the Frank Rizzo administration. And now, now, a scant 10 days later, the announcement was made. I-95 will reopen. So who's the hero? Don't say the governor, don't say the workers, though they did their role. Say recycled glass aggregate, or say it in a much punchier way as WCBS Channel 2 does. Pennsylvania's governor says crews will work around the clock to rebuild a temporary roadway made in part with 2,000 tons of recycled glass nuggets. Glass nuggets. Not all heroes wear capes because they don't cut capes in nugget form. But you know what else is relying on nuggets for innovation, advancement, and efficiency? Only the world's most beliked coffee chain, as ABC7 reports. The coffee shop chain is changing its ice cubes, replacing the current cubes with smaller nugget ice. Nugget ice. Nice. But who does it help? Just all of us. WSLS Channel 10 Roanoke has details. Nugget ice is made with machines that use less water, helping reach a goal of cutting its water usage in half by the year 2030. Okay, you heard those nuggets news nuggets. But you also know the rule of three. Three makes a trend. And there it is, hiding in plain sight. The third. It is a six foot eleven Serbian and his band of basketball playing brothers. At last, the long wait is over. After 47 years, the Denver Nuggets can finally call themselves NBA champions. Yes, it is the summer of nuggets. From the hardwood to the cold brew to the Tacony section of Philadelphia, everything's coming up nuggets, and I'm more than happy to plug it. On the show today, 6-3, it's short for a Denver nugget, but for a Supreme Court, 6-3 was said to be a slam dunk for conservatives. Don't worry, the basketball references end here, but my analysis on the dangers or purported dangers of a 6-3 conservative court is in the spiel. But first, let us now put instant coffee in the microwave and go back in time, as it were, because I refer to the iconic monotone of comedian Stephen Wright. You know him for his one-liners. He said, sorry, we're closed. I said, what do you mean you're closed? The sign says open 24 hours. He said, not in a row. But you might find it interesting, in fact, I'm banking you will, that he has become a first-time novelist, complete with extended thoughts, digressions, everything that could flit across the consciousness via an avian visitor to the mind of a seven-year-old, as channeled by Stephen Wright. The name of the book is Harold, comic legend Stephen Wright, up next.
Harold is a seven-year-old boy living in the New England area in the 1960s. Stephen Wright is a 60-something-year-old man living in the New England area today. He's also one of the best comics of all time, and with Harold, the author for the first time of a novel. It has a chance, who knows how novels work or what gains fire, but maybe future generations will one day regard it as a surrealist masterpiece. It is both funny and vivid, and I also think it really gets at the nature of youth and perception and where thoughts come from. It was a joy to read. I'm now joined by Stephen Wright. Hi, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. Thanks for those compliments. How much of Harold is you? Oh, uh, it's really all, all of me. I mean, it's, you know, I, my act is like, you know, a couple one sentence, one jokes, dun, 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 and hopefully have an audience laugh out loud at these two or three sentence things. It's my birthday recently. For my birthday, I got a humidifier and a dehumidifier. <laughs> Put them in the same room, let them fight it out. And that's a very narrow window of creativity. I used to work for the factory where they make hydrants, but you couldn't park anywhere near the place. <laughs> I used to be a proofreader for a skywriting company. Meaning there's a lot of stuff in my mind that wouldn't be go into the form of jokes. So when I started writing Harold, just I wrote a story for Rolling Stone magazine about in 1988, it was a fairy tale about how the beach was invented. <laughs> and every five years, I would read it, and I really liked it. And I thought, I should write something else, but I never did. But then about seven years ago, I read it, and I thought, I should write something else. So I just started writing this thing about Harold in school. I, didn't, I don't know. It just came to me immediately. I didn't ponder it. And as I started going into it, I realized that I could use his head I could put a funnel on his head, and I could pour into his head all that I think about life, and 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 like stuff that would never go through in a little window of jokes, right. you know. So it was like I used his mind as an excuse—not as an excuse. I I was able to get all this other stuff that's in my mind out through him. Yeah. But I never thought ever during it. I mean, you know, you read it. So, you know, this seven-year-old wouldn't be thinking about 85% of this stuff. But I didn't care. And I never thought of, like, what would a little kid think in this situation? What would a, someone this age think of this subject? I never thought of that because I'm automatically seeing it like that anyway. I'm automatically observing the world like all artists, you know, you're just extra noticing. All artists from noticing paintings, books, movies, music, it's, you're reacting to what you're noticing. Right. Also, if you applied the decree, oh, no one would think that or no one would think like that, it would be such a limitation that you wouldn't have a career. The things you think <laughs> of are appealing because no one would think of that. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh. Right in the beginning, I thought I don't care that no, like seven year old. I wasn't writing it. I had no book deal. I, no one was waiting for it. I was just. I enjoy 
writing and uh i really learned when i started texting like 10 15 years ago whenever it was i learned i didn't notice i knew i liked writing jokes i knew mm-hmm. that for years and years but when i would write texts to people i noticed that i would write it like correctly i had the sentences correct i had it smooth i had it moving like moving like i wanted they became little they weren't funny sometimes they were funny but even if i was telling someone where i was going to meet them on saturday i wrote it absolutely correctly and i noticed that i liked writing even if it wasn't jokes i didn't really know that before so that opened up a whole my thing of my mind Wow. So you're the first person who ever was inspired to become a novelist because of your joy and affinity for texting. Yes, because the jokes are very calculated, assembled concepts. But I was assembling, or I'll meet you on Saturday at 930 if this happens. And if not, you know, I, I would never abbreviate. I would never use the, the, the slang. I would write all the words out. I was having fun and enjoying of assembling the words. I didn't even know I liked, I knew I liked words. I knew I liked sentences from assembling the jokes, but I didn't know that I liked it even if I was, you know, telling someone I was getting new shoes. So there are lines here. This book can be read as a series of jokes interconnected with interesting scenes and a character sketch, but there are just lines. In fact, there are hundreds of lines that very well could be a classic Stephen Wright one-liner. Teeth are a skeleton preview. Coffee is cocoa with poison in it. (laughs) There are never two yesterdays in a row. All right. Those, I could see that that would be a Stephen Wright joke, but I've also heard you say you never know when an audience will think a joke is funny. Really? Even after all this time? Yes, it's fascinating. I mean, in the, I learned that in the right in the beginning, I couldn't tell, of course. And for every three jokes I write, only one of them gets a big enough laugh to stay in my act. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, when a baseball player, if a guy's batting 300, that's great. But he, that means he got out seven times. Yeah. So the the bet, but so getting back to your point, if I write it down, if I think of it and I write it down, it's because I think it's funny. But it's then I have to try it out. I, I I cannot predict even now, all through these years, right from the beginning, I cannot predict which one they're going to laugh at or not. And if they don't laugh, I try it three times. If they don't laugh, I throw it away. If they laugh three times, then I'll keep it. Because the first time they laugh, it might be it might have been a fluke. And mm-hmm. the second time, okay. The third time, you can count on it. But when the ones I throw away, it's not that I don't – I still think they're funny. I don't think I was wrong. But they didn't agree. And they're in right. charge. The audience is the editing. They're editing the thing. Right. As someone who – thinks about words, do you find that sometimes lyrics that are taken as profound really aren't? It's just that the song around them is great, you know? I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. Like, if true, that would spell doom for the planet, would it not? I mean, the first two <laughs> the first two phenomenon are things everyone has seen, so it doesn't really distinguish the speaker in any way. And then the third thing is just kind of displays his ignorance of, you know, drought. <laughs> uh, the, the thing about 
music is you don't have to be there's not it doesn't demand logic like the like the the jokes have to make complete sense even if they're making an absurd point you just can't say you know 500 rowboats were flying through the sky i mean that's right. just that's just you know you need to have it's like mathematically this plus this equals this at least in the stuff i do yeah, I've I've written many songs. I've also painted. Painting is my first thing before I ever wrote anything. I used to paint realistically, and then in my twenties, I completely changed to abstract painting. So you have the jokes, the music, and the abstract painting. The jokes demand complete logic. Then the music, like the lines, like that line we're talking about, and even those lines you're saying in those other songs, you can get yeah. away. It doesn't have to be exact. With the, somehow music allows you to just round off. I guess that's what poetry is. You, you know, it doesn't have to make total conscious sense. And then when I paint, there's, there's no, there's nothing. That's the furthest of like, there's no logic at all involved. Huh. Was was it your joke? It's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs> so that's one of those jokes that I, I it's probably taken away from you, right? It's like one of those things that Lincoln or Churchill says, and people just believe <laughs> it's been out there in the ether. Did that come from your past as a painter? No, that I know you weren't doing house painting. <laughs> no, that was from just my mind thought of like it's a small world. You hear that term all the time your whole life. It's a small world and then one time I thought of it and then I just said but I wouldn't want to paint it. It was like I just <laughs> added it was taking it literally logically and then it's like it was it just struck me one day is that's the setup that's the setup to something and nobody would want to paint it came immediately it's also the economy of the joke is is perfect right you don't need any big setup you don't need people say or maybe you've heard people say just boom small world wouldn't want to paint it yes i learned early on to to not waste any words at all no filler one time i went to the drive-in in a cab no big setups. Movie cost me $95. It was just streamlined, just fact. How can I get the point across with the fewest amount of words? About four years ago, I... No, it was yesterday. <laughs> Which also, they kept... They would laugh more. The audience would, would laugh more because everything was so short. And since they were laughing more, I was more comfortable standing on the stage because they were laughing more. Because everyone has, I didn't even feel comfortable on the stage. I didn't realize this until years later, thinking back that, oh, maybe that's why the jokes are so short. So I don't have to stand there talking in between as long. Well, you also speak slowly, which I think the audience can tell is not an affect or put on, but did that either help the audience concentrate or I'll throw something else out there. If you spoke quickly to fill a 40-minute set, you'd have to write, I don't know, 2,000 jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like when I would do a TV appearance, five minutes, it would be come out roughly to 20 to 22 jokes for five minutes. And and my my voice, I mean, I, that's just a 
total gift accident that the that that helped what I'm the material so much just simply because of how I speak that it elevated it by accident. This is just how I speak naturally. And that's how I think naturally, abstract. I didn't think, well, I need to do something different. I know I'll do one-liners. I, there was never any plan about anything, just like the book. I had no, I didn't even know where the book was going. But anyway, it's an accident that the abstract thinking and how I speak mesh together to this distinct style just, just by a fluke. Now, as far as abstract thought, the cover of the book, and I'll mention this oh. because of your background in painting, right? It's brilliant. It's this boy's face in black and white, but we don't see his face. We see a framed picture, and in the picture are three beautiful birds uh, in color. So it reminds me a little bit of Magritte and the pair in front of the uh, man in the bowler's face, which is, you know, a great nod to the abstract. But uh, my listeners should know that a motif of the book is that these weird thoughts present themselves as a different kind of bird flying into Harold's head. And you must name a hundred different species of birds. I bet you went deep in your research of birds. But how did that idea come to you? Rather than just the thoughts just appeared that manifesting themselves in this physical way as these often exotic birds. Well, the cover is just fantastic. I can't believe the the illustrator uh, did that. I complimented him. I mean, he he read the book, and that's what he came up with. And I said to him, I, he didn't know I loved. I mean, he, surrealism is in the book. I mean, he it's yeah. all through the book. But the, the cover was like exactly perfect. And I told him that like this is amazing. Even if it wasn't the cover of my book, even if it didn't say my name or Harold, if it was simply a painting. It's stunningly beautiful. He really, he said he read it and he wanted to do something really good for it. And he, I, I could not be more thrilled. People see the, they get compliments on the cover all the time. Now the rectangle and the birds where it says in the book uh, uh, that he, Harold imagined. See, I, as I wrote the book, I remembered things that I thought of over many, my whole lifetime. These odd things that I thought of. I would remember them as I was writing the book, and some of them I would just insert right in. The thing about Harold thinks that in his head there's a little, there's thousands and thousands of tiny birds, and each one represents a specific thought. And there's also a tiny rectangle in the middle of his brain, like an empty picture frame or an empty... Uh, window frame and if the the birds it's like an indoor sky in his mind so the birds are flying and if they accidentally fly right through the rectangle whatever that bird represents that's what harold thinks that's why it seems like his mind is jumping around from one subject to, to the other but i think everyone's mind really works like that but i thought of that before i wrote the book just as an amusing thing for myself, like imagine that this is how your mind really works. This is how my mind is working. The whole, the birds, the rectangle, it was, had nothing to do with the book. Then as I started writing the book, I thought, oh, I'll just insert this into his head. I'll have him explain to the reader that this is how his mind works. And that enabled, I, enabled me to change the subject constantly. Like, 
in a logical way because the birds represented a thought. And most of the birds I made up. I made up their characteristics. I made up their names. There's some real birds, but I had fun inventing the birds. I, I don't even know really much about birds. I know like five birds. People have been asking me, are you really into it? Are you an expert? No, I know five birds. <laughs> <laughs> I know five birds. That is, that's up there with I have a pony. A great yeah, 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 you're right. I don't, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking it's such an insane sentence. <laughs> It could be like yeah, I'm on the dating game and the and the girls asking the three contestants. Bachelor number one, tell me a little bit of like about yourself. I like five birds. Bachelor number two. <laughs> uh, uh, that's that's something. Okay. Have you ever found or have you found that your surrealistic material from the eighties or the nineties co is coming true? Comes true after a while. There, I can't think off the top of my head right now, but there is a couple, three, about three or four things I made up that were just insane, and now they are real. But I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you ready? You ready for this? I read this article in the New York Times yesterday, I think a couple days ago. Where are the heads? Hordes of ancient statues pose that puzzle. Many museums would like to match their headless torsos with the missing heads, but a debate between a Turkish and Danish institution makes clear it's not always so easy. That is a Stephen Wright joke, isn't it? Yes, it, the joke was, uh, I went to a museum where they had all the heads and arms from the statues that are in all the other museums. <laughs> In yes. Denmark, they're apparently yeah. Turkish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're having a debate like they don't want to do it, like they're discussing it. Yeah, I wonder who has greater sway in that debate, the torso side or the head side? Oh, <laughs> oh that's so philosophical. That's amazing. What a battle that is. <laughs> I think it actually, in real life, has more to do with like which of those two parts were stolen or expropriated. But I would just love, you know, a, a half-hour debate, the virtues of deferring to the torso versus deferring to the head as the real statue. Yes, that would be good if you were driving somewhere and you had a recording of that meeting. You're driving yeah. across the United States and you're approaching the Rocky Mountains and, and you hear the guy saying, I don't know, I think the head more is intellect. I, I don't know, you, you know, 30 <laughs> minutes as you're going into the mountains. Yeah, and then at the last minute or like, you know, some bonus episode, and now... Speaking for the penis, it's the Michelangelo <laughs> people. <laughs> and now a word for the penis. <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. The name of the book is Harold. It's written by Stephen Wright. I could read you all of his credits, but just know this. He knows five birds. <laughs> I know Thank five you so much. That was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me. And if you want to hear more of Stephen Wright... I know I do. Many, many more minutes, which might add up to like three or four more sentences. Subscribe to Pesca Plus. We have an ad-free subscription tier, and we have a Pesca Plus tier with bonus content, bonus interviews. They're both available for a very manageable fee at subscribe.mikepesca.com.
And now the spiel. Tomorrow, Thursday, the Supreme Court will be issuing some of the more important decisions of the term. They've already handed down major decisions in cases involving Google, Twitter, Alabama voting laws, a Teamsters strike, the EPA, and Native American adoption rights. Now we hear, in lots of places, about the danger of the conservative majority 6-3 court. The Hill reports trust in Supreme Court plummeted amid rise of 6-3 conservative court. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic was on Jonathan Capehart's Washington Post podcast. Here's how he set up the conversation. And its 6-3 conservative supermajority has shown no qualms about overturning precedent and creating new legal theories to achieve long-held goals of the right. On this program, your gestial safe space from the hurly-burly of all the argle-bargle, you heard that very argument right here. Michael Waldman, president of NYU's Brennan Center, was decrying the runaway power of the 6-3 court. Right now, we've got a six to three supermajority of very conservative justices who are most of the time in significant ways operating as part of a kind of a political machine. And I think that that is part, at least, of why the court's public support and credibility is plummeting. The left has raged against this machine, and it seems for good reason. Hello, Roe was overturned. That was a conservative supermajority 6-3 decision. Also, gutting gun laws, 6-3. So coming into this term, the stage was set, and precedent, which the Supreme Court loves, was established. But then something weird happened. This court has so far issued 39 opinions of the 57 cases it's heard. We're waiting on the rest. Want to guess how many of the 39 opinions have been 6-3, with the conservative majority making up the 6 and the liberals the 3? The answer is 0. Not a case. By the way, how trivia questions work, if the answer was 9, I wouldn't have asked it. There haven't even been any 5-4 cases where the three liberals got one conservative to come over to them, the losing side. It wasn't that the liberals have won every case, but it is the case that the losingest justices have been Alito and then Thomas and then Gorsuch in that order. The justice whose opinions became the law of the land most often, Sonia Sotomayor, thus far. So what is happening? Well, like I said, some of the big decisions haven't been issued yet. Here's Bloomberg previewing the upcoming cases. Quote, legal observers expect the 6-3 conservative majority, the most right-leaning court in over 90 years, will vote against affirmative action, undermine Biden's student debt plan, and side with the website designer. This was in a uh, a gay wedding, don't want to design your wedding invitation case. But like I said, legal experts, Bloomberg quoting legal experts, legal experts have been wrong thus far. It hasn't been a particularly conservative court thus far this term. And legal experts, those experts, were surprised that Native American rights were upheld by a 7-2 majority, with Alito and Thomas comprising the two. They were surprised when Alabama's racial gerrymander was tossed out with Kavanaugh and Roberts joining the three liberals. At what point do we have to conclude that maybe these legal experts were making assumptions based on anxiety as much as evidence or proper power of prognostication? Well, yes, yes, we are very likely to see affirmative action in higher ed go down. But I ask us all to consider, is that one of the most important cases? Maybe. Is it more important than the case where 6-3 didn't rear its society-defining head? Allen v. Milligan, that was the Alabama election case. Sure, if affirmative action goes down, the college application process will change, but the fundamentals of democracy won't. 
Oh, and by the way, if affirmative action and college applications are disallowed, that is in line with the opinions and the will of most Americans. I just bring that up because cutting against the will of most Americans was a critique of this 6-3 runaway super conservative court when it came to past decisions. Another of the big cases yet to be decided, that wedding invitation maker's right as an artist to turn down a job to create invitations for a gay wedding. Just to know where I stand, I argued with David French on this case. He thinks that it's a proper extension of First Amendment rights not to compel someone to make art for any reason they don't want to make art. I said a wedding card maker is more of a commodity and and vendors who peddle commodities should not be allowed to deny access based on sexual orientation. So I would, if I were on the court, be voting with Sotomayor, Jackson, and Kagan, but I don't know why the gay wedding invitation case is so much more important than the voting rights case or the Native American rights case, or even the cases that Twitter and Google won, holding them harmless for expressions by users of their platform. Granted, those cases were decided 9-0, but it doesn't make those cases unimportant just because they weren't close. And then we have to consider the independent state legislature theory case or the case of wackadoodle versus say what now? Sorry, read that wrong. It was Moore v. Harper. It's an extremely consequential case. The Bloomberg article, which I quoted before, citing the looming 6-3 conservative majority, was titled, Supreme Court Leaves Politically Fraught Cases for Last. And the first line reads, Buckle up, the Supreme Court has saved some of this year's most politically explosive decisions for the end of the term. But Moore v. Harper would be the most consequential, except for the fact that it very much seems destined to fail. The six do not agree with independent state legislature theory. In fact, maybe even only two or three do. At oral arguments, a few of the conservative justices expressed skepticism. Here's Justice Kavanaugh. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore. And to give you a glimpse into Kavanaugh's mindset and why he values adhering to the 23-year-old Bush versus Gore ruling, well, here he was 23 years ago on the steps of the Supreme Court being interviewed by Wolf Blitzer on CNN. I think what we're seeing is more of a divide over how to interpret the Constitution than really political differences. I don't think the justices care that it's Bush versus Gore or if it were Gore versus Bush. What they care about is how to interpret the Constitution. What are the enduring values that are going to stand a generation from now? That history, plus the skepticism he expressed, plus take into account Amy Coney Barrett's skepticism. By the way, she also, like Kavanaugh, worked for the Bush side on Bush v. Gore. It all seems to strongly suggest the independent state legislature theory is a loser. And so then, if it does lose, if we get this ruling and it goes down, will it be interpreted as, well, there is yet another piece of evidence that cuts against the fear of a 6-3 conservative court marching in lockstep, taking away our rights, issuing crazy theories, Is that how it's going to be interpreted? I doubt it. All of these decisions that haven't been of that 6-3 makeup seem to do nothing to calm down the most worried amongst us, who also in many cases seem to be the most learned. The New Yorker quoted Mark Lemley, Stanford law professor, as saying of the current term, if the court decides that we don't have a right to elect the winners of elections, as it seems poised to do, it may dismantle the political apparatus of our country for good. This echoes the dominant explanation among those who are most worried. They look at every piece of data that doesn't confirm their theory, and they say, etiam said tamen, 
or to translate from the Latin, yeah, but still. No decisions have been 6-3 with the liberals getting crushed. Yeah, but still. Okay, of the 39 decisions thus far ruled on, 25 have been 9-0. Yeah, but still. Okay, Alito and Thomas are the biggest losers. Sotomayor, the most frequent winner. Yeah, but still. Please. I really hope we haven't totally lost our ability to update our priors in the face of new evidence. And if you promise to do that, if you're one of those who were concerned that I was among that group, but if you've been ignoring all the latest evidence, I suggest you take it into account. Just think anew about what it means. And I swear I will do the same. I will not be surprised if we, in fact, start seeing a bunch of 6-3 rulings in the future on very consequential matters. Yeah, it hasn't been that way so far, but we still have a few more to go. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist, umperu, gperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.